please, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I want to read verses 97 to 104. Psalm 119, please, verse 97. I'll finish my considerations of Psalm 119 next week with kind of a a summary of it all, but uh, this week one more. One more point, then next week to sum it up. Then after that to begin something new for the fall. Psalm 119, please, verse 97. Hear the word of God. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate Every false way. This particular stanza in this um, psalm um, really connects us with the theme of the psalm. Um, this value that the psalmist and we, the value, the, the, the psalmist places a great value on the word of God. And it, it enables him an opportunity to express his appreciation, his praise to God for this This word, this particular stanza helps us a great deal with that. You'll notice it begins, verse 97, begins with this expression, oh, which is a pause. It's it's kind of like that oh that you say after you taste something that's just very rich and wonderful. Or you find a treasure that you just couldn't even imagine having have found. And there it is. And you just simply have to stop and say, wow. That's a sense of oh, wow. And he says how I love your law. That expression to love the very word of God, to love the law of God, is, is a very common one for this psalmist. He, he speaks of it in, in, in various kinds of ways. For instance, in verse 47, he, he says, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I'll lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. He says, I, I love them. He says, I'm ca- captivated by them. They, they have a hold on me. So he says, I'll meditate upon them. That is, I'll run my mind over them all the time. Just the same way we do of, over every kind of thing that we love. If we love our hobby, we think about it all the time. We meditate upon it. We think about that hobby, getting to it, how we're going to express ourselves through it and in it and how it informs our lives. We love another person. We're captivated by that other person. We, we think about that other person. We wrap our minds around that other person. And we see how it is that they influence, impact, inform our lives and all of that. If we love a sport, if we love our work, whatever it is, it, it occupies our, our minds. He meditates on the word of God because he loves it. When you think about loving the commandment of God. Now, by our nature, most of us really don't like being commanded. We don't really like being told what to do and how to do it and all of that. But he says, no, when it comes to the law of God, I love this. And when he's saying he loves it, he's not just saying I like to read it or I like to think about it. He says, I I love what I find here. I love what it does in my life. I love the very fact that this comes from God and he commands me in such a way that he defines my life for me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not looking to myself to define my life, but I'm looking to this very word of God to define my life. That's That's what it does for me. It tells me who I am. And when he tells me who I am, I love that. I embrace that with every ounce of my being. I think about that all the time. This is what God says about me. Yes, that is what is true. Whatever anyone else says about life, whatever anyone else says about what it is to be a human being, no, that isn't true. What God says about what it means to be a human being is true. And here I find direction for my life. God actually directs my life. He tells me how I'm to live my life. He gives me the ought of my life. How I'm to do this the best way, the the way that is real life. And he says, I love that. He tells me. He directs my life. In fact, he even tells me what I'm to love and to what I'm to hate. He tells me the true ways and the false ways. He not only defines my life, as we've said, directs my life, but he also tells me in what my heart is to delight. And he says, when I get all of that together, I, I love this. 
No doubt as he read through the scripture, as he knew it, this psalmist, as he would have it in the tradition of ancient Israel, and he would even have it before him in various kinds of traditions, he would say, yes, I, I love it because it provides for me this knowledge of the covenant of God, how it is that God has made promises to his people that he would be their God and that they would be his people, how it is that he called us to be his, how it is that he, he got this group of people who were enslaved in Egypt out of Egypt and how he gave us this Passover and how he spared our lives because he took this substitute, how he gives us a way of atonement so we can live in his presence even though we sin against him and he is holy, still he takes the, the life of this animal in our stead so that we can live so that we can be in his in his presence I love that and I love knowing that God and then as he sees the very commandments of God, the testimonies of God the witness of God, of life and all of that, as as he meditates on the precepts of God that is in all of the details as he comes to know the ways of God and the righteous judgments of God All through his word, he says, yes, that's true. I love that. There there isn't anything that satisfies me more than what comes here. And he reads the law of God. And if we just think about, about the Ten Commandments as we understand them, this tablet, these two tablets of the law, where on the one hand we see that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and on the other to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. He says, yes, that's true. I love that. God is God, and I realize I'm to have no other gods before him. Yes, that satisfies my soul. That gives me life to worship him and him alone. And not only worship him, but worship him rightly. That is to have no false images of of him in any way, but to to worship him rightly. And not to use his name in any curses at all. And and to realize that my whole life is dependent upon him. I'm to rest in him as is evidenced by this. One day he gives us this Sabbath day, which is, is to be that day when I cease from everything else to prove that it's him I worship. It's him that I depend upon. It's him who supplies all of my needs. And so I rest on this day and I realize that all of my life is dependent upon him and he provides all that I need. He says, yes, that's true. I, I love that. I wouldn't want life to be any other way. I submit my whole being to that and to him. And this is to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and, and we work back through it. He says, the very fact that children are to honor their parents and all that that means and family relationships and and building people who are submissive people and respectful people as children and then even as adults. He says, yes, yes, all that that means in terms of relationships between parents and children. God is right. I, I love that. There could be no family relationship better than one in which children submit to parents and parents love their children. So there'd be no society better, no community better uh, than one in which there is no murder, that there's great respect for life, that life is valued, the life of another is valued. Yes, that's life. I love that. I love that. I love the fact that God has called us to live in respect of one another in one another's lives and that I'm respected and I respect others. Yes, that's the way it ought to be. Everything else I ought to hate. Everything else I had to despise other than, 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 than a community, than a people who loves one another in such a way that respects one another's lives. There should be, he says, no adultery. Yes, of course. In the marriage relationship, it should be pure. And, and, and as God defines a marriage relationship, that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. I love that, he says. There could be no better way than, than that. That informs our lives. But this, this relationship is between a man and a woman. That's how God has established it. It should be one where a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife. The two are one flesh. And in such a way they live that out in proper roles, proper relationship as the husband is head and the wife is submissive and all of that. He said, yes, that's, that's right. And there should be no straying from that. There should be no taking another when you're already in union with this one. Yes, that's it. What could be better than that? And as he thinks upon that, he just grows in great delight. The wisdom and the wonder and the grace 
of God. There should be no stealing. Yes, of course. How could we have a culture where, where we steal, where we, where we do that, where we take that which belongs to another? Plus, I shouldn't take it. I should work for it. I should, I should do my very best, if you will, and, and be industrious and, 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 and gain that which is, is good for me to have by the work, by the fruit of my own labors, by the work of my hands. Yes, I should work. That's great. That provides such great satisfaction. and That productivity is such joy. Why should I steal when God could enable me to produce and to give. We shouldn't lie. How can we have a culture that's based on falsehood, that's based on, on lying? No, no, we need to tell the truth, to be honest about who we are, to, to lay that out one to another. He says, yes, of course. Anything else would be horrible, would be like hell. And he says we shouldn't covet, that is, that all of these things which we love and, and these ways that we love one another shouldn't just be actions that we take. It shouldn't just be boxes that we check, but it really should come from the heart. That's exactly it. So that not only am I not going to commit adultery, but I'm not going to covet another's wife. Someone, a wife isn't going to covet another's husband. Oh, yes, why? Because, because it comes from the heart, this no adultery. I, I'm not going to covet your things. Not only am I not going to take them and steal from you, but but I'm not going to, to want to. I'm going to trust God that he'll provide me. I'm going to be glad for you, joyful for you that you have stuff. I'm going to rejoice when you rejoice because you have something. I'm not going to covet to take it. It's going to be this love from the heart. He says, that's really it, isn't it? It all comes from the heart. That It all comes. I don't covet God's position. I don't covet what you have. I, I give thanks to him for, for how he's ordered all of life. And he said, yes. So when he says he loves the law of God, it isn't a small thing. He says, this, this, this is my whole life is wrapped around this. That's why he speaks of meditating on this law all the time. He has nothing that, is, that makes him happier than to think about how God has arranged everything. He says, that, that's what really makes me happy. So every day, my mind gets wrapped around this. Every day, I think upon these things. Every day, because that is the joy of my life. So he says, all right, I, I love uh, your law. And, and he's very specific here in this particular stanza. And, and what he really loves about, his, about this law of God as he meditates on it comes out in verses 98, 99. And 100, he says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Verse 100, I understand more than the aged. And he said, well, what this law does is it makes me wise. Makes me wise. Gives me wisdom. I'm wiser than my enemies. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be able to outsmart them, but I, I understand them. I know what's going on here. I understand what's really important here in the midst of this. He says, it, it, I understand more than my teachers, more than the aged. And, and there he doesn't have in mind teachers who also know the word of God or the aged who also know the word of God. He's saying that those who have accumulated knowledge in the world that are considered to be teachers, I have more understanding than they do because of my understanding of the word of God. Those who have accumulated years and therefore have a measure of respect in the culture because they have great experience, I'm actually, I have actually more understanding than they do because they don't understand your word and I do. And so your word informs my life in such a way as it makes me wise. Now, what is that wisdom? Um, J.I. Packer, book Knowing God, in a chapter entitled God Only Wise, puts it like this. He says, in scripture, wisdom is a moral as well as an intellectual quality. You need to catch that. It's a moral as well as an intellectual quality. More than mere intelligence or knowledge, I would say it isn't less than that, but it's more than intelligence, knowledge. More than mere intelligence or knowledge, just as it is more than mere cleverness or cunning. For us to be truly wise in the Bible sense, our intelligence and cleverness must be harnessed to a right end. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means 
of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. That's why he says that in Scripture, wisdom is a moral as well as an intellectual quality. Because when we're speaking about wisdom, we're speaking about that which is best, to know what's best. And know the best way to get there. Anytime we use words like best, we're talking about that which is moral. It's the goodest, if you will, if I could not disturb your sensibilities there. It's the very best. It's that which is good. It's moral. It's right. And so you see, someone who's wise knows that which is right knows that which is best. The best end and the best right way, if you will, to get there. Now, Packer goes on to say this. As such, that is because wisdom is in fact the practical side of moral goodness, as such it is found in its fullest only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and invariably wise. His wisdom ever waketh, says the hymn, and it's true. God is never other than wise in anything that he does. Wisdom, as the old theologians used to say, is his essence, just as his power and truth and goodness are his essence. Integral elements, that is, in his character. So, so God is wise. He's good, so he knows the very best. But in his wisdom, he, he is also powerful, omnipotent. So he knows everything. He is good. He knows that which is the best. And because he's omnipotent, he's powerful, he can get you there. His wisdom will be accomplished. Packer goes on to put it like this. He says, wisdom without power would be pathetic. A broken reed. Power without wisdom would be merely frightening. We've seen that, haven't we? But in God, boundless wisdom and endless power are united. And this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. He's wise. Uh, A.W. Tozer, some of you like him, so I'll just give you a bit of him today. And it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. He writes this. He says, in the Holy Scriptures, wisdom, when used of God and good men, always carries a strong moral connotation. It's conceived as being pure, loving, and good. That's real wisdom. When you want some wisdom, you go to a person who knows what's right, what's best in the circumstance. Wisdom, among other things, Tozer goes on, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It it sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need for guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals and flawless precision. He speaks of God as this one who is one who is perfect. So the psalmist says, I love your word. Why? Because it comes from God. Notice how he puts it in verse 102. He says, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. You probably haven't been paying attention. But in the last couple of weeks, in my prayer of illumination, um, I have found myself praying, because I didn't really plan to say this, but it came out both weeks in a row. I didn't do it this week because I thought you might think I was being redundant if you were paying attention. But I made mention in my prayer, because I was struck both weeks by it, should be struck all the time by it, of the fact that when we hold the Bible in our hands and when we read it, we have the very Word of God. That's just amazing. I don't know if you've ever have gotten a personal letter from somebody that's famous or whatever, and you kind of treasure it, and you cherish it, and you look at it. Wow, look at this. I got a letter from whoever. Um, this is God. You want to know what God is thinking? You read this. I, 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 it, it, uh, uh, who can talk about that? Who can even speak of that, right? Here it is. The very word of God. And so the psalmist says, when I, when I meditate on your word, you're teaching me. When I meditate on your word, you, God, I'm listening to God here. He says, whoa. He says, I love this. I love this. And so you see, what the psalmist is saying, I'm 
by your word than getting real wisdom because you're wise. And you're good. You know the end from the beginning. You know where this is supposed to go. You know the best way to get there. And so as I read your word, that's what I'm getting. I'm getting what's the highest good, what's the best end of all of life, and I'm learning about how it is that I'm to get there. Now, we often in our century, in the last end of the last one and this one, speak of this in, under this rubric. We title this often, Knowing the Will of God. And that's a good title, but it can be a little deceiving if we're not careful. We've talked about this before. But when we talk about the will of God, we need to acknowledge that it's complex. And we need to acknowledge that there's something to uh, God's revealed will, that which he has told us about, and his secret will, that which he hasn't. And I get that from Deuteronomy chapter 29. In verse 29, Moses writes this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, when Moses speaks of the th- secret things of God, he's not speaking of the things that God knows and is afraid we might find out. So he's going to keep them a secret. All right? He's, not, he's saying, no, no, God is God. Puts him in a whole different category over here in terms of what we can really understand. And so he doesn't, can't reveal all that is true because we can't understand all that he is. We don't always understand that, and so he said they're secret things. And, and the way theologians have put this over the years is we've called this the will of God's decrees. That God knows and ordains all things that come to pass. And we don't know those ahead of time. When I pray for someone who is sick to be healed, I don't know if they're going to get better. I don't know what God has decreed. When I pray for our military in battle to be victorious, I don't know that they will be. I don't know what God has decreed. Right? Uh, When I pray in various contexts about that which is to come, I simply don't know. When, When I'm even thinking through how something might work out, I pray about that according to what I know to pray, which is God's revealed will, but I don't know what God has decreed. I only know what he's revealed as I read it in Scripture. That's the only thing I can have confidence in. And so I I pray. So do I pray for people's healings? Yes. Why? Because God said do that. So I do that. (laughs) And, and, And he says, I want you to desire that. And I desire that. But I don't know if it's going to happen. Because I'm not God. Now I know in the whole scheme of things at the end of the day, that is, in the end of the age, that is when Jesus comes back, for believers, there'll be perfect healing. So then you'll say, thanks for praying for me. It worked. Um, I'll say, well, I didn't have everything to do with it. Uh, but I don't know this decretive will of God. What I do know is God's commands. And so that's what I'm to wrap my mind around. I'm not to worry in a sense about what is going to happen. I'm to wrap my mind around how I'm to understand life by what God has revealed by his word. And so that's what the psalmist says. You've made me wise. You've made me wise in these things. Now sometimes it's a good thing for us when we're occupied with knowing the will of God. That's a good thing. If what we mean by that is I desire to please God in everything. That's great. Now the danger often happens with us um, in our culture especially. uh, It seems as I read historically, as I read various centuries, I find, and other people smarter than me have found this before me and clued me into it so it was helpful, that in the mid part of the 20th century and now the 21st century that we have this sense about the will of God that God is supposed to speak to us somehow on the inside and tell us exactly what to do in all these kinds of decisions and all these kinds of situations that we have to make. We have all kinds of decisions to make. Who are we going to marry? What are we going to major in? What job are we going to take? Uh, How are we going to discipline our kids? Um, 
how, as our parents get older, we honor them and love them. Uh, um, we, we have questions about healing. Is somebody going to be healed or not? We have, and what, what can we do about that? We have uh, questions about whether our kids should play sports on Sundays. We have all kinds of questions like that. You just list them, all the things that you would just like God to say, you know, give you a checklist in the morning so you could follow it. A couple of things on that. Number one, don't kid yourself. You wouldn't necessarily follow it. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, let's just start there. Secondly, that doesn't seem to be throughout scripture and history of the Christian church the way God works. Now, we would like that in the sense in part because somehow I think, we think, that if I'm walking perfectly in something called the will of God, then my life will be good and smooth. Moses wouldn't have agreed with you. He said, I had a cloud that was leading me, and it led me to the Red Sea. That was a bit nerve-wracking, right? It led me all kinds of places, enemies, and I didn't necessarily want to go. Joseph would say, you know, I was in the will of God, but I was uh, sold into slavery by my brothers. It wasn't so good, right? Jesus, the scripture said, was led by or driven by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Paul said, I've been told by God, God's will, I've been told by God that everywhere I go, I'm going to face opposition and persecution. Peter says, if it is God's will, if you are persecuted for doing good. So, it doesn't necessarily mean life will be smooth or easy if we're in the very, what we call, will of God. Sometimes we're afraid that if we're not in that particular will of God, then we're going to miss out on the best that he has for us. And we're going to be sort of on this second best or third best or worst track. Oh, if I miss it here when I'm 16, uh-oh, then I'm on this track. And then I married the wrong person, and I'm on this track. That's not autobiographical, by the way. And then I took the wrong first job. And then, I mean, you can just see how this is going to just pretty soon. You're just, by the time you're 30, you're going, whoa, there's no, no getting out of this. But of course, that isn't true either. God can't be thwarted. If you belong to Him, He's ordained all kinds of things to take place in your life and mine, in our church and others, in the history of the world, and nothing will thwart his will from being accomplished. It is simply will in his people. Again, Moses killed an Egyptian. It didn't keep him from being the one who was ultimately sent back to bring the people out of Egypt. In fact, it was used by God in such a way to temper, to humble, and all of that, and, and, and there he was. Joseph sinned. I mean, Joseph was an arrogant little boy, wasn't he? He said he had a dream, and he went and told his brothers, someday you're going to bow down to me? That wasn't smart, right? And his life was a mess on this, uh, because of that. And where did he end up? Right? So you see, there isn't a plan B or plan C for God He's ordained all kinds of things. And we see things in our lives that he's decreed. We, we know what he's decreed. We just look back. We see what he's decreed. And we go, oh yes, oh yes. But, but still, God has promised to those who love him who are called according to his purpose to what? To work all things that he's decreed. All things together for good. So we needn't have that fear. We don't need to pray with the kind of desperation. We need to pray with a certain kind of desperation, but not with the kind of fear that says, if I get this wrong, I'm sunk. Not to pray like that. We pray with the desperation that says, God, above all, I want to please you. That's what we're desperate for, if you will. So we need to be afraid. So we have to be cautious in this whole will of God thing. We want an inner voice. We want to wait until the, you know, the, the box gets checked and then we will. Now there are times, obviously, throughout history, especially redemptive history, where God speaks directly to people. We don't find that much happening uh, you know, since. If you read in the book of Acts, you find it a bit, but not very much and all of that. Because now you see we have the very, very word of God. You remember... Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, said something that I often skip over if I'm not careful, but it's rather amazing. John chapter 15 and verse 12. 
He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no end to this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. If you are my friend, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. Now there's a sense in which we're still servants, right? Paul calls himself a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in which we're still servants. So catch the sense that Jesus means it here in this context. He says, he says, if you are my friends, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer I call you servants, for, ser- for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. In other words, he's saying, you're my friends in this sense. You're not servants in this sense. A servant simply given orders. The, the master doesn't, uh, isn't required, doesn't have any sense to reveal his heart to the servant. He just says, do this do that. We've all served in that kind of capacity. We don't have a clue who the master is in his heart. We just know we've got to do these things or we're in trouble. Uh, But Jesus said, you're not my servant in that sense because I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to tell you everything. You go, whoa. Right? I'll let you know these things. And so he does. He says, "Here's, here's what I want to tell you. Here's everything. Believe in me and love each other. And we want to say, could you be more specific? Who am I supposed to marry? (laughs) And he'll say, someone you love. While loving me. In the context of loving me, love that person. So that defines a whole lot of things right there, doesn't it? It says, well, couldn't love someone that doesn't love Jesus in order to be married. Okay, that's a good one. We'll start there. what, What does Jesus love? Well, I'll love that and this other person. Right? Oh, all of a sudden we're starting to get some stuff. But, 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 but I don't think, generally speaking, that you're going to wake up in the morning and have a name in your mind and go find that person. If you do, call them first. <laughs> Warn them ahead of time that you're coming. But, 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 but the dangerous kind of, or jobs or whatever it is. He says, no, no, I'm going to make you wise. I want you to meditate on all the things I've talked about and, and, and pray and my spirit will be at work in you and, and Act in faith. Trust me. Go for it. Make that decision. You see, that's the sense of him being wise. And of course, he, he was. He, he did reveal to these apostles uh, all that he was true about him, and he did it by his spirit. And they wrote it down. And so we still have this book in which we read and meditate upon. And so the psalmist would know, this word makes me wise. Uh, as I come to meditate upon this word, as I think as God thinks, as I, as I learn from him, then in fact, I'm wise so that I can live this life. And he knew that in the context of his enemies. In the context of his enemies who were trying to undo him, he was wiser than they because he knew the highest end, he knew the best result of this wasn't necessarily that he would be successful in life. It wasn't necessarily, necessarily that he would be rich or famous or prestigious or any of that in the culture. He knew that the best thing that could come from whatever it was in his life, enemies or not, was that God was glorified, that God was honored. And so he knew, as long as I remain faithful to God, my life is blessed. Could be that my enemies are nailing me to the wall. But if in the midst of that, I continue to follow after God... I get it. I understand. What was the will of God for him in the midst of that? The will of God for him in the midst of that situation was to remain faithful to God, to love, to forgive, to be merciful, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be just, all of that. In the midst of that, and that was the wisdom of God for him. And he knew it. He knew that God was good. He knew that God was faithful. He knew that God was wise. He knew that God was sovereign. And so he could live out in the midst of his days wiser than his enemies. As we looked at last Sunday, as Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says, don't don't be afraid of them. Because you see, your lack of fear will be their undoing. Your lack of fear will be a sign to them of their destruction. They can't get to you. Why? Because you're you're trusting in God. And he knew that was the highest end. He knew that. You see, if he wasn't so wise, he might think that his place in the society was best and therefore he would compromise in some way in order to retain his status in the culture. But he knew that wasn't the best. The enemies could continue to come after him. 
So long as he remained faithful to God, he knew because he was wise, the will of God, that God would be honored in the midst of this. He knew the great value of the word of God. He had been meditating on it. He knew, as Moses had said, God had said, and Moses had recorded that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He said, that's it. I live upon the very word of God. When Moses said, these words are an idle words to you, they're your life. He knew that, that he would meditate on these words and they would bring life to him. He knew from Joshua they were to meditate on this word day and night because by meditating on this word day and night, not deviating from it from the right or to the left, brings success, as it's put there, or brings wisdom, if you will. It brings the very success of God. Success not necessarily meaning military success, not necessarily meaning financial success, not necessarily meaning success in every relationship, as we might understand that, but success in the sense that God would be honored, which is really what we're after in the first place because that's the best of life. As we have it in Psalm number one uh, that begins this entire praise book of the Old Testament. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked aren't so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way the righteous but the way the wicked all perish. So we jump to the New Testament. We know from Paul's letter to the Romans how it is. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 12. We read this a few minutes ago. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, either its thinking or its behavior. That I added parenthetically. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is, what's the best end? That's the will of God. The will of God is the best end where this is going, we're going to end up. The best end is his glory. The best end is for us to be conformed to his image. The best end, the best means for all of that, is for us to be faithful to what he's revealed in his word. No matter what decision we make, and there are good decisions and bad decisions and all of that, but the point is, he's revealed to us that we're to love, that we're to be merciful, that we're kind, we're to be gracious, we're to be patient, we're to be forgiving, we're to be just, we're to be all that, you see. He says, says, so live that out. And then decide. Make decisions. We know from 2 Timothy in chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, as Paul writes to Timothy, he speaks of the word of God and he says, How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, competent for every good work. There it is. Peter writes much in the same way. Second Peter, in chapter 1, verse 3, says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. He said these come from these very great promises. Now how do we get there? How do we get from a point of non-wisdom to a point of of wisdom. Well, first this, that it requires really that we uh, are humbled before God. The, The writer of Proverbs who writes, Solomon, who writes so much of wisdom, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It begins with the fear of the Lord, that is, reverence for God. 
begins by saying he knows I don't. He's wise, I'm not. See, the very nature of sin is to make us unwise. Sin has us after an end which isn't best and the means to get there which aren't best either. We gave up wisdom in the Garden of Eden because there the fear of the Lord was given up. The respect for the word of God was given up when the, when the evil one came to Adam and Eve and, and, and said to, to, to Eve that, that if you eat of this tree, then you'll be like God, having the knowledge of good and evil, meaning you'll be the one, like God, who gets to define what is good and what is evil. She ate, and everything got turned on its ear from a human perspective. No longer did we know what was good. No longer did we know what was evil. For we weren't listening to God as he said what is good and what is evil. And so now all of that needs to be reversed. Now we need to humble ourselves and go to him, fear him and say, you know, I don't. Please define for me what is good and what is evil. What's miraculous about this psalmist is that he says, I love the commandments of God. I love the way you define things. I love what you say about you and me. I love what you say about how I'm to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love what you say about how I'm to love my neighbor as myself. That's true. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you say. So we must humble ourselves and go before him. But in going before him, you see, we know that we must go before him in the one who is our wisdom. We must go before him in Jesus. The scripture says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that he is our wisdom. He's the very wisdom of God. He's our wisdom. We can't know the wisdom of God lest we come in him because the fear of the Lord means I realize who God is and who I am. I realize his holiness and my lack. And therefore, for me to go even into his presence means I must admit my sin. For me to admit my sin means that I'm admitting that he's just to condemn me. And so I'm sunk at that point. So the only way that I can come before him is to come in another who is able to make me pure. Who is able to take me into the presence of God to learn from him. So that I won't get cast out. And Jesus is the only one. He's the very wisdom of God. He knows God perfectly. He knows the best end, the glory of God and our salvation. He knows the means to get there, his own death and resurrection. And so we come in him, in Jesus. And so we're humble. You see, there's no way to stand at the cross without being humbled. Because the cross says, I deserve condemnation because of my sin. And the only way that I can be pardoned is through another who has given himself for me. I've wrecked it so that this is what it takes. That's humbling. That cuts right at our own pride. We have nothing in which to boast at that point. And so we come before God and say, okay, turn everything right. Teach me your way. And he says, all right, read, meditate my word by way of my spirit. And, and so we come to the scripture and we read it and we meditate on it, but, but, but not simply as an academic thing. We read it and meditate on it like no other book because as we're reading and meditating, we're praying the very spirit of God will work in us. All kinds of prayers. For instance, in, in, in Colossians, in, in chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now that will there would be the kind of will that we refer to as his commandments or his precepts. Not as decrees. Paul isn't praying that, we, that we'd know what's going to happen. He's praying that we would know the wisdom of God. A knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's why. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruits in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. And so he says, you come to this scripture praying. Or as Ephesians 6, you take up the word of God, the sword which is the sword of the spirit, praying. Right? Praying. All the time. Saying, God, enable me to understand. We call this, we have it listed in our order of worship, and you have this, I trust, in your own order of worship as you have your own quiet times, or whatever you call them. A prayer of illumination. 
isn't a prayer of revelation in the sense that we're asking him to reveal something new to us that he's never revealed to anybody else before. We're praying him to, to, to shed light on, to open our eyes, enable us to see what's here in the scripture so that we may apply it in the context of our lives. Make us wise. That's what we're praying. And there's no shortcut to wisdom. You don't wake up one day wise. Now, God may help you, give you some insight from time to time, but, 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 but if you neglect... This is the sad thing. As you neglect the word of God in the course of your life, then you're neglecting the very wisdom of God and growing in it. That's why I'm, I'm one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons I love our church is because our children are growing up in a way that starts them very young learning the things of God. And I so anticipate that when the kids who grow up in our church are 40 and 50 and 60, they will see the very wisdom of God because of how they've grown up in this. I mean, they just learned it. And so we trust they'll be wise as they're older. They'll know how to take care of me. <laughs> right? The wisdom of God there. So we're, we're, we're humble before God. We're humble before God in Christ. We come praying and then meditating on the word of God. But we have to be careful. We have to come also, I think, confessing. James 1.5 puts it like this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. Uh, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Now I read that, and, and I want to say, all right, great. I'll go to God asking for wisdom without doubting. And then I have to sh- scratch my head and say, I don't know that I've ever done that. I'm not that good. I'm not that perfect. I get James' point. He's right. We got to go. Not doubting, but, but, but there are times when I have to pray, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. And, and part of the doubting is, is whether or not I really want to take the wisdom of God. You see, God says, don't come to me in a comparison mode. That is, I want to hear what God says, and I want to hear what the world says, and I'll kind of put the two together, and then I'll decide which is better for me. He says, no, 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 no. If you come to me, I'm not, I don't play second fiddle, or whatever other metaphor you want to use there. I, I don't play that game. I'm me. You come to me, I'm going to give you my wisdom. By my word and spirit. But, but if, if you don't want to follow it, then... I'm not going to give it to you. And so I come confessing. I come, God, I think I want to know your wisdom. I hope I want to know your wisdom. I really need to know your wisdom. It would be best for me if I knew your wisdom. But God, I have to be really honest with you. I'm, I'm a sinner. Please help me as I come to receive your wisdom. Because God's wisdom is different than any other kind of wisdom. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 13, he writes, James does, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, wisdom shows itself in doing that which is good. See, that's wisdom. It's doing that which is good. It isn't being smarter than everybody else. It isn't being clever everybody else. It's by plugging along, doing that which is pleasing to God. That is the wise person. You see? The most brilliant person on the one hand, in whatever field that person is brilliant in, isn't wise if his life isn't one that's lived pleasing to God. He might be smarter. She might be smarter than everybody else. You might be able to learn a lot of stuff from that person, knowledge-wise, information-wise. But don't go to that person for counsel about life. Why? Because they're not wise. They don't know the best end to your life. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. He says that would be living a lie. If you're saying you're wise and yet you live in bitter jealousy of others or, or, you, or you live for selfish gain, that's not wisdom. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, ambition exist, there'll be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom of God, the wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is shown by peace, in peace by those who make peace. This little book called Step by Step by James Petty, which I think is generally good, and I say that because I haven't read the whole thing, two-thirds of it. He puts this. He says, James 3, 13 through 18, gives us some idea why people might think that they want wisdom from God, but then change their minds as they start to learn it. Wisdom requires learning to accomplish deeds in humility. Yet, most of us want wisdom partly because it adds to our stature. If you're going for wisdom so you can look better than everybody else, no. It's God's wisdom will humble you. Right? We don't always want that. James says that wisdom is peace-loving. And that sounds wonderful until we find out we'll not be able to expose or condemn someone who has sinned against us. <laughs> the wisdom of God so I can see their sin. Ooh, so I can expose their sin. No. He'll give us the wisdom of God. He'll give us his wisdom and say, bear with them. Trust me. Cover it. The wisdom from above is considerate. That sounds appealing until we realize that we may have to think of someone else's needs for a lifetime and serve him or her with little or no earthly thanks. That's being considerate. Submission is not something that most of us love to learn. We like to think of ourselves as full of mercy until we realize that we may have to spend years being merciful to a family member who doesn't deserve it and who, on top of that, spreads false and derogatory information about us. Being a peacemaker might seem fulfilling uh, because we visualize God bringing the other party around to a reasonable position, and then we find out that peace will often have to be unilaterally imposed. It will require us to overlook an offense and endure being wronged. This is the life of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the life of love for our enemies, even when they are members of our own household, company, or family. When love for our enemies is required, lots of people decide to abandon the search for godly wisdom. They opt for a kind of wisdom that seeks ways of getting their desires fulfilled, all the while appearing to be benevolent, peaceful, and generous. The psalmist says, I love your law. It makes me wise. It enables me to see that which God loves and hates and enables me to see how it is that I can fulfill that which God loves. That's the will of God. Let's pray. Father.